Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. Listening to episode 132 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Carlos Castaneda and the Yaqui sorcerer Don Juan. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on curses. But first, in 1968, America was experimenting with new, mind-expanding philosophies. The previous year's Summer of Love saw the hippie movement blossom. Some were exploring Native American culture as a path to enlightenment, and many pursued psychedelic drugs. In 1968, an anthropology student named Carlos Castaneda published a book called The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge, which brought these themes together. It claimed to reveal the secret teachings of a sorcerer named Don Juan. It became a bestseller, and together with its many sequels, Castaneda's books have sold over 28 million copies and inspired countless seekers. Time magazine dubbed Castaneda the godfather of the New Age movement. But there were dark mysteries surrounding Castaneda, mysteries that deepened after his death and that remain to this day. So who was Carlos Castaneda? What did he teach, and how many of the mysteries surrounding him can we solve? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, when did you first become aware of Carlos Castaneda? It was back in the 1970s when his books were at the height of their popularity. I was a boy at the time, and I had an interest in magic and the supernatural, so I was interested in any books on that subject. I also had an interest in Native American cultures, so I was quite interested in Castaneda's books, which combined both of these interests. I was not interested in the psychedelic drugs they involve. In fact, I remember being uncomfortable with that aspect of them. But I at least skimmed the books, even though I didn't read them in depth. So starting at the beginning, who was Carlos Castaneda? According to Time magazine, Castaneda said he was born December 25th, so Christmas Day, in 1935 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He said he was born Carlos Arana, but adopted the name Castaneda later and immigrated to the United States in 1951. He had a background in sculpture and hoped to become an artist. He became a student at Los Angeles Community College, where he took classes on creative writing, literature, and philosophy. In 1957, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen, and in 1959, he enrolled in the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, where he studied California ethnography. 
While at UCLA, one of his assignments was to interview a Native American. He turned in a paper describing an interview with an unnamed man about the ceremonial use of Jimson weed. The active ingredient in Jimson weed is atropine, which has a variety of effects. Jimson weed is used in ceremonies by some Native American groups for its hallucinogenic properties. Castaneda got an A on his paper, and it's apparently a prototype of his later work about Don Juan. In 1960, he married a woman named Margaret Runyon in Mexico, but the couple didn't stay together long. Castaneda dropped out of school due to lack of money and took to disappearing for significant stretches of time, saying he was going to the desert. Despite the couple's separation, Castaneda adopted Margaret's son, CJ, though another man was the father. Eventually, he returned to UCLA and studied anthropology, which led to his work with Don Juan. How did Castaneda meet Don Juan? He reports that he was at a bus stop in the Mexican border town of Nogales, Arizona, when he met an old yaqui named Don Juan Matus. The yaqui are a Native American people who live in northern Mexico and the American Southwest. Don Juan was very knowledgeable about plants, and Castaneda begged to let him try peyote. Peyote is a spineless cactus that contains several psychoactive compounds, most notably mescaline. Like Jimson weed, peyote has hallucinogenic effects, and various Native American groups have traditionally used it for medicinal and religious purposes. Although reluctant, Don Juan eventually let Castaneda try peyote, and he had a most remarkable vision in which he saw a large black dog. Don Juan explained that this dog was actually Mescalito. One of the names for peyote is Mescal, and so Mescalito would mean little Mescal or little peyote. Mescalito was thus the spirit of the peyote who had appeared to Castaneda. Don Juan said that the fact he appeared to Castaneda meant that he, Castaneda, was a chosen one and that he, Don Juan, would now train him in the ways of Yaqui sorcery. Like Don Juan, Castaneda would now become a sorcerer, or to use the Spanish word, a brujo. He thus began studying under Don Juan and began writing what would become the teachings of Don Juan. Was this originally intended as a book for the general public? No, it was originally submitted as Castaneda's master's thesis. Here's how Salon.com describes the book. The teachings is largely a dialogue between Don Juan, the master, and Carlos, the student, punctuated by the ingestion of carefully prepared mixtures of herbs and mushrooms. Carlos has strange experiences that, in spite of Don Juan's admonitions, he continues to think of as hallucinations. In one instance, Carlos turns into a crow and flies. Afterward, an argument ensues. Is there such a thing as objective reality, or is reality just perceptions and different equally valid ways of describing them? Toward the book's end, Carlos again encounters Mescalito, whom he now accepts as real, not hallucination. In the teachings, Castaneda tried to follow the conventions of anthropology by appending a 50-page structural analysis. According to his wife Runyon, his goal was to become a psychedelic scholar along the lines of Aldous Huxley. He'd become disillusioned with another hero, Timothy Leary, who supposedly mocked Castaneda when they met at a party, earning his lifelong enmity. And that jives with other things I've heard about Timothy Leary, who could apparently be a kind of prickly guy. 
After completing the book, Castaneda took it to his professor, who encouraged him to take it to the University of California Press, and it was published in 1968. With thousands of drug-crazed hippies on the scene, it sold big time. Castaneda got a literary agent, and soon Simon & Schuster had picked up the rights to the book. He then published multiple sequels dealing with Don Juan, starting with A Separate Reality, Further Conversations with Don Juan in 1971, and Journey to Ixtlan, The Lessons of Don Juan in 1972. In 1973, Castaneda began to withdraw from public view, but he continued publishing. In 1974, he published Tales of Power. In 1977, he released The Second Ring of Power. 1981 saw The Eagle's Gift. 1984 had The Fire from Within. 1987 had The Power of Silence, Further Lessons of Don Juan. 1993 had The Art of Dreaming. 1998 had Magical Passes, The Practical Wisdom of the Shamans of Ancient Mexico, and 1998 also had the release of The Wheel of Time, Shamans of Ancient Mexico, and that was the year of his death, 1998. In 1999, The Active Side of Infinity was published posthumously. All told, he published 12 major books, all on similar themes. And what happens in the books? Do they all deal with Don Juan? In one way or another, but they're not all centered on Don Juan the way the first book is. Here's how Salon describes them. In A Separate Reality, published in 1971, Carlos returns to Mexico to give Don Juan a copy of his new book, The Teachings of Don Juan. Don Juan declines the gift, suggesting he'd use it as toilet paper. A new cycle of apprenticeship begins in which Don Juan tries to teach Carlos how to see. New characters appear, most importantly Don Juan's friend and fellow sorcerer, Don Gennaro. In a separate reality and the two books that follow, Journey to Ixtlan and Tales of Power, numerous new concepts are introduced, including becoming inaccessible, erasing personal history, and stopping the world. There are also displays of magic. Don Gennaro is at one moment standing next to Carlos, at the next he's on top of a mountain. Don Juan uses unseen powers to help Carlos start his stalled car, and he tries to show him how to be a warrior, a being who, like an enlightened Buddhist, has eliminated the ego, but who, in a more Nietzschean vein, knows he's superior to regular humans who lead wasted, pointless lives. Don Juan also tries to teach Carlos how to enter the world of dreams, the separate reality also referred to as the Nahual, a Spanish word taken from the Aztecs. Later, Castaneda would shift the word's meaning, making it stand not only for the separate reality, but also for a shaman like Don Juan and eventually Castaneda himself. In Journey to Ixtlan, Carlos starts a new round of apprenticeship. Don Juan tells him they'll no longer use drugs. These were only necessary when Carlos was a beginner. Many consider Ixtlan, which served as Castaneda's PhD thesis at UCLA, his most beautiful book. It also made him a millionaire. At the book's conclusion, Carlos talks to a luminous coyote, but he isn't yet ready to enter the Nahual. Finally, at the end of Tales of Power, Don Juan and Don Gennaro take Carlos to the edge of a cliff. If he has the courage to leap, he'll at last be a full-fledged sorcerer. This time, Carlos doesn't turn back. He jumps into the abyss. So Castaneda was now a full-fledged sorcerer capable of flight. And it was a good thing because he wouldn't have Don Juan with him for much longer. 
When the next book, The Second Ring of Power, came out in 1977, Castaneda revealed that Don Juan was no longer among us. However, instead of dying, he turned into a ball of light and entered the Nahual, or separate reality, with which he was in contact. Back here in our reality, Castaneda's books were insanely popular and received tons of critical praise, as well as having a devoted following of New Age seekers. As we said at the top of the show, Castaneda's books have sold more than 28 million copies, so he became rich, and he bought a multi-building compound on Pandora Avenue in the prosperous neighborhood of Westwood in West Los Angeles, which is where he was living at the end of his life. Did Castaneda do anything besides just publish books? In the 1990s, he began teaching a self-help technique that he called tensegrity. And in 1995, Castaneda and several of his followers created a company called Clear Green Incorporated to promote tensegrity. The word tensegrity comes from architecture. It was coined by Buckminster Fuller, and here's how Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines it. The property of a skeletal structure having continuous tension members, such as wires, and discontinuous compression members, such as metal tubes, so that each member performs efficiently in producing a rigid form. So, tensegrity involves the tension and compression belonging to different parts of a structure to produce a rigid form efficiently. Castaneda applied this term to a set of bodily movements or exercises that he referred to as passes. By using these bodily movements, you can accumulate spiritual energy that can be put to work for various purposes. So basically, this is Castaneda's equivalent of Indian yoga exercises or Chinese Tai Chi or Qigong exercises, except it had a Native American theme because Castaneda said it was based on a set of exercises handed down through 25 generations of Toltec shamans. And the basic movements were taught to him by Don Juan and other shamans. According to a Tensegrity website, you can use the exercises to Optimize your level of energy, vitality, and well-being. Balance and strengthen your physical core. Experience more mental alertness. Find fresh new insights. Reconnect with your best self. Release stress. Go to bed calm and inviting of your dreams. Take back control of your life. ClearGreen offers instruction in Tensegrity through a variety of means. These include multi-day workshops at different sites around the globe and home study courses, including videos. You said Castaneda and his followers founded ClearGreen. What followers are we talking about? After 1973, Castaneda had largely withdrawn from public view. In fact, he never voluntarily let his picture be taken, so there are very few pictures of him after that time. However, he still maintained contact with people, and he had a close circle of followers. Who belonged to this circle changed over time with people coming and going. For some time, the American author Amy Wallace was part of it. She was the daughter of the popular novelist Irving Wallace, and with him and her brother, she wrote the People's Almanac and the Book of Lists series, which was very popular in the 70s and 80s. I had and read all of these books, and I really enjoyed them. In fact, I still have Volumes 1 and 3 of the Book of Lists. They're basically organized trivia collections, so they make for fun, light reading. However, Wallace broke with Castaneda, so she wasn't one of his followers at the end. His inner circle was a group of women that called themselves the Witches. 
They meant that literally because they did, in fact, practice sorcery based on the teachings Castaneda inherited from Don Juan. Among these teachings, you'll recall, were concepts like becoming inaccessible and erasing personal history. Castaneda himself began becoming inaccessible after his withdrawal from the public eye in 1973, and we'll discuss in the reason section how much he erased of his personal history. The witches followed suit. They also became largely inaccessible. They moved into his Westwood compound and cut ties with their families, with most of them never speaking to their families again. They also erased their personal histories. They took new names, and they cut their hair short and frequently dyed it blonde. As part of Castaneda's inner circle, the witches helped lead the Clear Green Tensegrity workshops, and they served as the officers in the company. They also managed access to Castaneda in his final years. How did Castaneda die? In the summer of 1997, he was diagnosed with hepatocellular cancer, in essence, liver cancer. This is the most common cause of death with people who have cirrhosis of the liver, and it's associated with chronic liver inflammation, such as caused by hepatitis or alcoholism. Castaneda died on April 27, 1998, and this is where things start to get weird, or weirder, with the mysterious disappearances of his key followers, as we're going to see. Among the questions we'll need to answer is, just how much of all of this was Castaneda lying about? Before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspective, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including John M., Jerry M., Craig B., Peter D., and Father Chris C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. So, Jimmy, let's continue. What theories are there about Carlos Castaneda and his followers? From the reason perspective, we've got a bunch of matters we'll need to discuss. First, how much did he lie about? That includes about his own biography, what he wrote in his books, and his Tensegrity teachings. Second, we'll need to look at his followers. What was his relationship with them? What happened in his final days? And what happened to them afterwards? We'll also need to look at several matters from the faith perspective. And finally, we'll need to look at Carlos Castaneda's legacy. All right. What can we say about Carlos Castaneda from the reason perspective? I want to give props to my aunt because back in the 1970s, when I first encountered Castaneda's books, I had no idea that there was a question of how accurate these supposed nonfiction works were. And it was my Aunt Glinda who first alerted me to the possibility of deception. So I want to dedicate this episode to her. Very nice. So how much did he lie about his early biography? 
you'll recall that in the 1973 Time Magazine article, he claimed to have been born on Christmas Day in 1935, which would have made him around 38 years old. But he elsewhere claimed to have been born in 1931, which would have made him around 41. A New York Times article even indicated he was born in 1915, in which case he would have been 57. But most sources indicate that he was born in 1925, in which case he would have been around 47 at the time of the interview. You'll also recall that he claimed to have been born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but his U.S. immigration records indicate that he was born in Cajamarca, Peru, which would make him Peruvian rather than Brazilian. And he said he only took the name Castaneda later in life, but his immigration records indicate that his birth name was Carlos Cesar Arana Castaneda. Furthermore, it's not clear when he divorced his wife. Some sources say 1960, others 1973. Some indicate he never divorced her at all. And his death certificate says he was never married. So we have evidence that at various times Castaneda lied about his year of birth, place of birth, birth name, and marital history. He also apparently lied about his military service and his father's occupation, so that's not a promising start. The 1973 Time article describes him as an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a tortilla. There's even some indication that he used a stand-in to pose for his psychedelic cover portrait for Time magazine. And when the reporter challenged him about the discrepancies in his personal life history, he said, To ask me to verify my life by giving you my statistics is like using science to validate sorcery. That doesn't actually make much sense, but it was a clear denial of any desire to clear things up. He also told Time magazine, Oh, I am a bull Oh, how I love to throw the bull around. So, an open admission that he's unreliable. What about what he wrote in his books? Is there evidence that he lied in them? From front to back. Even though doubts had been publicly raised earlier, after the 1973 Time article pointed out some of the problems with his claims, Castaneda withdrew from public view and became even more secretive. This was supposedly in keeping with Don Juan's teachings about a sorcerer erasing his personal history, but you can also suppose that he simply didn't want to feed public examination of his claims and harm the marketing of his supposedly nonfiction books. Also, he may have had a genuinely paranoid streak in his personality that began to manifest increasingly. Whatever the case may be, critics started pointing out problems with his writings. One of them was something my aunt noted for me. As you might suppose, the popularity of his books and the enigmatic figure of Don Juan led to many people wanting to meet the Yaqui sorcerer. Lots of people wanted to get high with him and become sorcerers, too. So, as my aunt pointed out to me, people had been combing the desert looking for Don Juan. Don Juan Matus apparently was a pseudonym, but Castaneda gave enough clues that it should have been possible to identify the real Don Juan. But it wasn't. Nobody could find him, leading to the suggestion that he didn't exist and was just a fictional figure created by Castaneda. Other things also suggested this. Castaneda's fiercest critic was psychologist Richard DeMille, son of the famous Hollywood director Cecil B. DeMille, who directed The Ten Commandments, among many other films. The Salon.com article notes, 
No one contributed more to Castaneda's debunking than Richard DeMille. DeMille, who held a Ph.D. in psychology from USC, was something of a freelance intellectual. In a recent interview, he remarked that because he wasn't associated with a university, he could tell the story straight. People in the academy wouldn't do it, he remarked. They'd be embarrassing the establishment. Specifically, the UCLA professors who, according to DeMille, knew it was a hoax from the start. But a hoax that, he said, supported their theories, which DeMille summed up succinctly. Reality doesn't exist. It's all what people say to each other. In DeMille's first expose, Castaneda's Journey, which appeared in 1976, he pointed to numerous internal contradictions in Castaneda's field reports and the absence of convincing details. Quote, During nine years of collecting plants and hunting animals with Don Juan, Carlos learns not one Indian name for any plant or animal, DeMille wrote. The books were also filled with implausible details. For example, while, quote, incessantly sauntering across the sands and seasons when harsh conditions keep prudent persons away, Carlos and Don Juan go quite unmolested by pests that normally torment desert hikers, end quote. DeMille also uncovered numerous instances of plagiarism. When Don Juan opens his mouth, the words of particular writers come out. His 1980 compilation, The Don Juan Papers, includes a 47-page glossary of quotations from Don Juan and their sources, ranging from Wittgenstein and C.S. Lewis to papers in obscure anthropology journals. In one example, DeMille first quotes a passage by a mystic, Yogi Ramacharaka. The human aura is seen by the psychic observer as a luminous cloud, egg-shaped, streaked by fine lines like stiff bristles standing out in all directions, end quote. In a separate reality, a man looks like a human egg of circulating fibers, and his arms and legs are like luminous bristles bursting out in all directions. The accumulation of such instances leads DeMille to conclude that Carlos's adventures originated not in the Sonoran Desert, but in the library at UCLA, end quote. DeMille convinced many previously sympathetic readers that Don Juan did not exist. Perhaps the most glaring evidence was that the Yaqui don't use peyote, and Don Juan was supposedly a Yaqui shaman teaching a Yaqui way of knowledge. Even the New York Times came around declaring that DeMille's research should satisfy anyone still in doubt. J.T. Fikes, author of Carlos Castaneda, Academic Opportunism and the Psychedelic Sixties, believes Castaneda did have some contact with Native Americans, but he's an even fiercer critic than DeMille, condemning Castaneda for the effects his stories have had on Native peoples. Following the publication of The Teachings, thousands of pilgrims descended on Yaqui territory. When they discovered that the Yaqui don't use peyote, but that the Huichol people do, they headed to the Huichol homeland in southern Mexico, where, according to Fikes, they caused serious disruption. Fikes recounts with outrage the story of one Huichol elder being murdered by a stoned gringo. Among anthropologists, there's no longer a debate. Professor William W. Kelly, chairman of Yale's anthropology department, told me, I doubt you'll find an anthropologist of my generation who regards Castaneda as anything but a clever con man. It was a hoax, and surely Don Juan never existed as anything like the figure of his books. Perhaps to many, it is an amusing footnote to the gullibility of naive scholars, although to me it remains a disturbing and unforgivable breach of ethics. Got that? The Yaqui people do not use peyote. 
But that was the basis of Castaneda's initial experience with Don Juan. And Castaneda has a habit of putting things on the lips of Don Juan that are based on quotations of other authors, including the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein and British author C.S. Lewis. Also, it's been pointed out that despite the fact Castaneda says his and Don Juan's conversations took place exclusively in Spanish, Don Juan uses English idioms for which there is no straightforward Spanish equivalent. And there are many other criticisms of his books as factually inaccurate. If Castaneda was lying about all these things, does that mean Don Juan is an entirely fictional character and nothing like the events in the books ever happened? I think the books are heavily fictionalized, but in 1973, Time magazine argued that this didn't mean Don Juan was entirely made up. Here's what they had to say. Where, for example, was the motive for an elaborate scholarly put on? The teachings was submitted to a university press, an unlikely prospect for bestsellerdom. Besides, getting an anthropology degree from UCLA is not so difficult that a candidate would employ so vast a confabulation just to avoid research. A little fudging, perhaps, but not a whole system in the manner of the teachings written by an unknown student with, at the outset, no hope of commercial success. I think they're being overly optimistic here. First, as the Salon article mentioned, the UCLA Press did expect the drug-related book to sell heavily. And so even if Castaneda didn't expect the mega stardom he got, he could have expected it to sell well, make him money, and build his reputation with the counterculture set. After all, his wife admitted he wanted to become a counterculture guru like Aldous Huxley or Timothy Leary. Second, dishonest students do cheat on their homework by plagiarizing and fabricating to make their assignments easier. And Castaneda was demonstrably a dishonest student since he turned in these fictionalized accounts as academic papers in fulfillment of his advanced degrees, including his doctorate. Third, I can easily imagine a student like Castaneda wanting to avoid spending months and years doing extensive fieldwork in the hot desert of northern Mexico, living with a brujo in a squalid shack. It would be much easier to chill out in air-conditioned Southern California and pick up what you needed from sources available in the library. And fourth, if Castaneda was a pathological liar... He would lie even if he didn't get much from doing so. I mean, that's one of the definitions of pathological lying, falsification that's entirely disproportionate to any discernible end in view. And we have Castaneda freely admitting that he lies, that he lies a lot, and that he enjoys lying. So he's a lying liar who lies, and I don't think we can trust anything he says without independent verification. And we don't have any of that for the Don Juan story. What about his tensegrity teachings? Do they have any greater basis in fact? Let's listen to how a tensegrity video describes the origins and purposes of the practice. Men and women who lived in Mexico in ancient times, whose expertise was to deal with awareness, believed that human beings are the beholders of a most peculiar dualism. They were not referring to traditional dualism such as body and mind or matter and spirit but to the dualism between the self and something they called the energy body. They consider the self to be a holistic unit which includes both body and mind, matter and spirit together, and they define the energy body as a particular conglomerate of energy fields belonging to each of us individually, 
that has the capability of being transformed into a perfect replica of the self, and vice versa. They believed that the self has the capability of being transformed into a perfect replica of the energy body, that is to say, a conglomerate of sheer energy fields. Those men and women of ancient Mexico invented and developed a series of movements which helped them to store enough spare energy to accomplish this dual transformation. So some people in ancient Mexico are supposed to have believed in an unusual form of dualism between the self and something they called the energy body. The self includes both the body and the mind, while the energy body is a conglomeration of energy fields. Already, I want to know which Mexican peoples believed these things. I want to know what the words for these concepts were, and I want to see documentation that ancient Mexican people had the concept of energy fields, a concept it took Western science until the 1800s to develop, much less that they had the concept of a conglomeration of energy fields. Then I'd like to see documentation that these people believed that the self could be made to perfectly resemble the energy body and that the energy body could be made to resemble the self. I'd like to see anthropological documentation that they believed the self, composed of body and mind, could be transformed into a conglomeration of energy fields and that they needed to do physical exercises to store energy to do this. All of this sounds like scientific mumbo-jumbo being projected backwards onto ancient peoples by a New Age author. The video then says, The movements you are about to see were called the 12 basic passes to gather energy. They are part of a vast series of movements which were taught to us the last links of a long chain of such men and women. So the Tensegrity instructors are the last links in the chain of this knowledge being handed down. On one level, that sounds like an effort to make Tensegrity practitioners feel special, because you're one of the last links. On another level, it suggests that we won't be able to find independent verification for these claims, since if they're the last links, there aren't other people around who can verify this stuff. They were taught especially to Carlos Castaneda by his immediate teacher, Don Juan Matus, and by another practitioner named Lujan. So Castaneda got them from unverifiable sources we have reason to think never existed. The persons who are going to execute the 12 basic passes to gather energy are Kylie Lundal, Naim Murez, and Reni Murez. The three of them belong to a class of beings that those people of ancient Mexico called Chakmuls, or the fierce guardians of energy sites. Remember the name of the Tensegrity instructor Kylie Lundahl. She was one of Castaneda's core disciples and will become important later in our story. For the moment, I want to celebrate the fact that we finally have a Native American term that can be checked out, Chakmul. The video defines it as a fierce guardian of an energy site, and it says that the three women in this video belong to this class of beings, even though they're human. I guess they would have been flattered to be described as fierce guardians of energy sites, but I find it rather comical. Fortunately for us, chakmuls are actual things in Mesoamerican culture, and archaeologists can tell us about them. How well does what archaeologists have to say correspond to what the video says? Not well. In actuality, a chakmul is a kind of sculpture 
that was used by peoples like the Maya and the Aztecs. We don't really know what these people called the sculptures, as the term chakmul was only applied to them in 1875 by the British-American archaeologist Augustus Le Plongeon. A chakmul, or at least what he named chakmuls, would be a statue that depicts a person lying on his back with his knees bent and propping himself up on his elbows, turning his head to look at you sideways. We'll have a link so you can see pictures of chakmuls. This flat-on-the-back posture is not what you would expect from a fierce guardian. In fact, the article will link notes that it is a defenseless passive posture. This defenseless passive posture is thought by archaeologists to represent the posture of people captured in wartime. Since they're lying on their backs, chakmuls have flat stomachs, and sometimes they hold bowls on their stomachs. It's thought that the bowls were used to receive offerings for the gods, including the alcoholic drink pulque, as well as tamales, tortillas, tobacco, and in the case of Aztec chakmuls, human hearts would be put in the bowls. Chakmuls that have flat stomachs with no bowl on them have been suggested to be sacrificial stones on which you'd make a captive lie down so you could cut out his heart as part of a human sacrifice. Chakmuls have been found outside, but never inside the inner sanctuary of temples. That may be the basis of the Tinsegrity claim that they were guardians of places of power. But they weren't guardians, as their helpless passive posture indicates. Instead, they were liminal figures, like crossing a doorway, that priests used in making offerings to the gods, including human sacrifices. Rather than being fierce guardians, they represent helpless victims. And this shows you just how much distortion there seems to be with tensegrity. Castaneda apparently took the term chakmul and gave it his own meaning, where it's a fierce guardian of an energy site, but the term chakmul only goes back to 1875, and it was not used for these figures by Mesoamericans, and they don't represent guardians, but victims. Here's how the introduction to the Tinsegrity video concludes. For those men and women of ancient Mexico, experts in dealing with awareness, to enlarge the parameters of perception meant entering into bona fide, all-inclusive new worlds. All-inclusive meant to them that those perceived new worlds were not mere concatenations of the mind, but worlds in which one can live and die. For them, entering into new worlds was the core of their magical expertise. Magic is a most inadequate term in this case, for it is loaded with insurmountable negative connotations. Those practitioners bypassed this negative slant by maintaining that their magic was merely a maneuver of perception. We have found out from our own experience that it is indeed a maneuver of perception, but a maneuver of such a magnitude that only the most daring and level-headed men and women can accomplish it. So the ancient Mexican practitioners bypassed the negative consequences of the term magic, a term whose equivalent shouldn't have had a negative connotation in their language. Magic has a negative connotation in our language, but if your culture practices something supernatural, to you it's just a ritual. So it, it doesn't make sense to say they bypassed the negative connotations by claiming their practices involved a maneuver of perception 
that lets you shift to alternate realities. The narrator says that this is indeed what it is, but that you'll have to be one of the most daring, level-headed persons if you're going to accomplish it. So you, the Tensegrity student, can compliment yourself on being daring and level-headed. But don't blame us if you're not daring and level-headed enough to be able to actually shift into other worlds. The video then starts showing you the 12 basic passes or exercises, and here's what Kylie Lundahl says about the first. The first movement is a minor movement, helping the flow of immunity. Dressed in a black exercise suit, she then leans forward, puts one arm behind her back, and uses her other hand to put her index finger under her chin. She then waggles her finger back and forth to stimulate the flow of immunity. And she does this with one hand, then with the other hand, then with both hands, after which she says, This movement stimulates sites of energy that keep one awake. It stimulates the flow of saliva. It also stimulates glands under the chin that flush toxins out. Do the movement with the right hand first, then with the left, then with both hands. And the video goes on like that, taking 50 minutes to show you the basic 12 moves. I also found two other videos, one of which is an hour long and one of which is an hour and a half long. While the purpose of the first movement may be to help you keep awake, I found the silly posture, the monotone delivery of the instruction, and the absence of any music to jazz things up all contributed to making this the most boring exercise video I've ever watched, and I didn't watch all of it. Your mileage may vary. You mentioned that the video instructor was Kylie Lundahl. What do we need to know about her and the other members of Castaneda's inner circle? For a start, Kylie Lundahl wasn't her real name. In fact, all of Castaneda's inner circle of followers, the witches, were women who took new names in keeping with their master's teaching about erasing personal history. They also started dressing alike, bleaching their hair blonde, wearing it in the same short crop style, and cutting ties with their families as part of the becoming inaccessible teaching and they all disappeared immediately after his death. Here's what Salon had to say. At the heart of Castaneda's movement was a group of intensely devoted women, all of whom were or had been his lovers. They were known as the witches, and two of them, Florinda Donner-Grau and Taisha Abelar, vanished the day after Castaneda's death, along with Clear Green President Amalia Marquez and Tensegrity instructor Kylie Lundahl. A few weeks later, Patricia Parton, Castaneda's adopted daughter as well as his lover, also disappeared. In February 2006, a skeleton found in Death Valley, California, was identified through DNA analysis as Parton's. Some former Castaneda associates suspect the missing women committed suicide. They cite remarks the women made shortly before vanishing and point to Castaneda's frequent discussion of suicide in private group meetings. Achieving transcendence through a death nobly chosen, they maintain, had long been central to his teachings. The witches, along with Castaneda, maintained a tight veil of secrecy. They used numerous aliases and didn't allow themselves to be photographed. Followers were told constantly changing stories about their backgrounds. Only after Castaneda's death did the real facts about their lives begin to emerge. This is largely due to the work of three of his ex-followers. One of his ex-followers was Amy Wallace, who we mentioned earlier. She eventually published a book about her experiences with Castaneda called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, My Life with Carlos Castaneda. Salon notes, Castaneda told her they were energetically married, 
One afternoon, he took her to the sorcerer's compound. As they were leaving, Wallace looked at a street sign so she could remember the location. Castaneda furiously berated her. A warrior wouldn't have looked. He ordered her to return to Berkeley. She did. When she called, he refused to speak to her. The witches, however, did, instructing Wallace on the sorceric steps necessary to return. She had to let go of her attachments. Wallace got rid of her cats. This didn't cut it. Castaneda, she wrote, got on the phone and called her an egotistical spoiled Jew. He ordered her to get a job in McDonald's. Instead, Wallace waitressed at a bed and breakfast. Six months later, she was allowed back. According to Wallace, acolytes were told to tell their families, I send you to hell. Wallace tells of one young woman who, in the group's early years, had been ordered by Castaneda to hit her mother, a Holocaust survivor. Many years later, Wallace told me, the woman cried about it. She'd done it because she thought he was so psychic he could tell if she didn't. The most difficult part, Wallace believes, was that you never knew where you stood. He'd pick someone, crown them, and was as capable of kicking them out in 48 hours as keeping them 10 years. You never knew, so there was always trepidation, a lot of jealousy. Sometimes initiates were banished for obscure spiritual offenses, such as drinking cappuccino, which Castaneda himself guzzled in great quantities. They'd no longer be invited into the compound. Phone calls wouldn't be returned. Having been allowed for a time into a secret magical family, they'd be abruptly cut off. For some, Wallace believes, this pattern was highly traumatic. In a weird way, she said, the worst thing that can happen is when you're loved and loved and then abused and abused, and there are no rules, and the rules keep changing, and you can never do right. But then all of a sudden, they're kissing you. That's the most crazy-making behavioral modification there is, and that's what Carlos specialized in. He was not stupid. So, this man was simply evil. What happened in his final days? Like everyone, he eventually got sick. And this was a big problem, because if you practiced integrity, you were supposed to be immune from illness. You know, all you got to do is lean forward, put your arm behind your back, and waggle your index fingers under your chin to stimulate immunity. So, your immune system should take care of all those nasty liver cancer cells. But, nevertheless, it was a big problem if you got sick, as illustrated by the case of one of Castaneda's followers, who was a woman named Tycho, or the Orange Scout. She had ulcerative colitis, Wallace told me. She was trying to keep it a secret, because if Carlos knew you were sick, he'd punish you. If you went for medical care, he'd kick you out. Once Tycho's illness was discovered, Wallace said, Tycho was expelled from the group. Nevertheless, in the summer of 1997, he was diagnosed with liver cancer. Because sorcerers weren't supposed to get sick, his illness remained a tightly guarded secret. While the witches desperately pursued traditional and alternative treatments, the workshops continued as if nothing was wrong, although Castaneda often wasn't there. One of the witches, Abelar, flew to Florida to inspect yachts. Former follower Guder, in notes taken at the time, wondered, why are they buying a boat? Maybe Carlos wants to leave with his group and disappear unnoticed in the wide open oceans. No boats were purchased. Castaneda continued to decline. He became increasingly frail, his eyes yellow and jaundiced. He rarely left the compound. According to Wallace, Castaneda's current follower, Tiggs, told her the witches had purchased guns. While the Nahual lay bedridden with a morphine drip watching war videos, the inner circle burned his papers. A grieving Abelar had begun to drink. 
I'm not in any danger of becoming an alcoholic now, she told Wallace, because I'm leaving, so it's too late. Wallace writes, she was telling me, in her way, that she planned to die. Wallace also recalls a conversation with Lundahl, the star of the Tensegrity videos, and one of the women who disappeared. If I don't go with him, I'll do what I have to do, Wallace says Lundell told her. It's too late for you and me to remain in the world. I think you know exactly what I mean. In April 1998, Guder filmed the inner circle packing up the house. The next week, at age 72, Castaneda died. He was cremated at the Culver City Mortuary. No one knows what became of his ashes. Within days, Donner Grau, Abelar, Parton, Lundahl, and Marquez had their phones disconnected and vanished. A few weeks later, Parton's red Ford Escort was found abandoned in Death Valley's Panamint Dunes. Even within the inner circle, few knew that Castaneda was dead. Rumors spread. Many were in despair. The Nahual hadn't burned from within and turned into a ball of light. Jennings didn't learn until two weeks later, when Tiggs called to tell him Castaneda was gone. The witches, she said, were elsewhere. So Castaneda died, and the witches vanished. And what happened to them? With one exception, we don't know. Some think they committed suicide, some think they're still alive, and it could be some of both. The one case we know about was Patricia Parton. As the article mentioned, her car was found abandoned in Death Valley just a few weeks later in 1998. In 2003, a skeleton was discovered near the site of Parton's abandoned Ford. The Inyo County Sheriff's Department suspected it was hers. But due to its desiccated condition, a positive identification couldn't be made until February 2006, when new DNA technology became available. Wallace recalls how Castaneda had told Parton that if you ever need to rise to infinity, take your little red car and drive it as fast as you can into the desert, and you will ascend. And Wallace believes that's exactly what she did. She took her little red car drove it into the desert, didn't ascend, got out, wandered around, and fainted from dehydration. And that's not the only possibility. She also could have deliberately committed suicide, she could have been attacked by a wild animal, and she could have met with foul play. Inyo County, the location of Death Valley, can be a really wild place, a surviving outpost of the Wild West. It's got lots of people who want to live off the grid, eccentrics, individualists, survivalists, criminals, people who are to be respected and in some cases feared. It's also where the Manson family hid out after the Tate-LaBianca murders we discussed in episode 54. So it's possible she got out there and died by accident, suicide, animal attack, or foul play. If Clear Green, the company that promotes Tensegrity, still exists, what does it say about what happened to the witches? Salon notes, on its website, Clear Green maintains that the women didn't depart. However, quote, for the moment, they are not going to appear personally at the workshops because they want this dream to take wings, end quote. So it says they're not dead, but many people think they are and that they committed suicide. In fact, we know of one woman who did commit suicide, though she wasn't a member of the inner circle of the witches. She tried to imitate Castaneda's famous leap from a mountain. In 2002, a Taos, New Mexico woman, Janice Emery, a Castaneda follower and workshop attendee, jumped to her death in the Rio Grande Gorge. According to the Santa Fe New Mexican, Emery had a head injury brought on by cancer. One of Emery's friends told the newspaper that Emery wanted to be with Castaneda's people. Said another, I think she was really thinking she could fly off. 
So suicide is a real possibility for these people. On the other hand, among Castaneda's key teachings were becoming inaccessible and erasing personal history. Therefore, if they wanted to simply vanish and drop off the grid, they're exactly the kind of people that would be motivated and knowledgeable about how to do that. So they could still be alive somewhere and in seclusion. Have the authorities tried to find them? According to Salon, Remarkably, there seems to have been no investigation into at least three of the disappearances. Except for Donner Grau, they'd all been estranged from their families for years. For months after they vanished, none of the other families knew what had happened, and so according to former follower Guder, no one reported them missing. Salon attempted to locate the three missing women, relying on public records and phone calls to their previous residences, but discovered no current trace of them. The Los Angeles Police Department and the FBI confirmed that there's been no official inquiry into the disappearances of Donner Grau, Abelar, and Lundahl. There is, however, a file open in the Marquez case. This is due to the tireless efforts of Luis Marquez, who told Salon that he first tried to report his sister missing in 1999. But the LAPD, he said, repeatedly ignored him. A year later, he and his sister Carmen wrote a letter to the missing persons unit. Again, no response. According to Marquez, it wasn't until Parton's remains were identified in 2006 that the LAPD opened a file on Amalia. To this day, he told me, they still refuse to ask any questions or visit Clear Green. His own attempts to get information from Clear Green have been fruitless. According to Marquez, all he's been told is that the women are traveling. Detective Lydia Dillard, assigned to the Marquez case, said that because this is an open investigation, she couldn't confirm whether anyone from Clear Green had been interviewed. So the fate of the witches remains a mystery. So what can we say about Carlos Castaneda from the faith perspective? What about the elements of Native American spirituality in the books, including the use of psychedelic plants? These helped make Castaneda's books popular in the 60s and 70s when many people were exploring alternative spiritualities. Every religion contains at least some elements of truth. You know, such points of contact serve as seeds of the gospel, to use a phrase from the church fathers. Therefore, while Native American spiritualities contain elements of the truth that should be respected, they also need to be corrected and completed by the fullness of revelation we have in Jesus Christ. When it comes to the use of psychedelics, we'll discuss that more in future episodes, but for now, suffice it to say that they are not a reliable way of finding the truth. Hallucinogens are just that, things that induce unreliable hallucinations. Also, we should look at the matter from a Native American perspective. This man lied about their culture and their beliefs. He grabbed elements of their culture, including things they hold sacred, then combined them with his own ideas and lied to the public about them. He's what some in the Native American communities refer to as a plastic shaman, an individual who tries to pass himself off as a spiritual leader, even though he has no real connection with the culture and the religious tradition he's claiming to represent. I mean, imagine a person trying to pass himself off as a Catholic bishop, even though he's not, and he then sells millions of books that wildly misrepresent Catholic teaching and practice. That will give you an idea of what Castaneda did with Native American beliefs. What about the fact that Castaneda apparently lied about so much? Is there any defense for that? 
your theory of lying will determine whether you think it's ever okay to lie. Uh, Some would argue that it would be permissible to lie to the Nazis about whether you're hiding Jews in your attic, so it might be legitimate to save lives, for example. But I don't see any way to defend the kind of lying Castaneda did. Though that hasn't stopped some people from trying. Some of his fans seem to get a charge out of the idea of him being a trickster like the trickster figure in some Native American folklore. Some also have defended him on the grounds that even if he made stuff up, his books contain profound spiritual truths. I don't buy either of these. Castaneda wasn't simply a playful trickster. He committed academic fraud in order to obtain advanced degrees, and he manipulated the spiritual and emotional lives of people by feeding them lies in order to get rich. Those aren't playful tricks. They're unacceptable moral offenses. What about the claim that he used non-literal narratives to communicate spiritual truths? After all, Jesus taught the people in parables. You can use non-literal narratives to communicate truths, but if you're going to do that, you need to somehow communicate to the audience that you're using symbols. Everybody recognized Jesus' parables were symbolic rather than literal accounts. The gospel writers even say he taught them in parables. So this was obvious to everybody. But that's not what Castaneda did. He presented his books as works of nonfiction. He even submitted them to get his PhD from UCLA. That's straightforward lying. And you should never trust your perception of reality to a person you know to be lying to you. So you shouldn't be relying on Castaneda's books to inform your worldview or your spiritual life. Trusting a known liar to teach you spirituality is dangerous in the extreme. And that seems to have been borne out in the case of his disciples, including the witches. He manipulated and emotionally abused them and his other followers He destroyed their relationships with their families, including not only cutting them off from their loved ones, but having them tell their families to go to hell and even having one woman strike her mother. All that's just evil. And eventually some, and perhaps all, of his closest followers were led to commit suicide. So after foolishly entrusting themselves to him, he led them to death. Let's close this episode by looking at Carlos Castaneda's legacy. What can we say about that? He was very influential and had an influence on the broader culture in ways people don't realize. In the early part of this episode, we talked about how Castaneda's books recount him becoming the apprentice of a powerful sorcerer who lives in the desert, who reluctantly takes him on, teaches him, and puts him through tests. And then after the training, the sorcerer vanishes and enters the spiritual world. If that sounds like what happened with Luke Skywalker and Ben Kenobi and Yoda in the Star Wars films, there's a reason for that. George Lucas based these characters in part on things in Castaneda's books, as well as other things from folklore and mythology. And by the way, shout out to our colleagues at Secrets of Star Wars. Maybe you want to let your listeners know about this episode of Mysterious World as an aspect of the background to Star Wars. But... Not all of Castaneda's legacy is as benign as that. Setting aside what happened with the witches, Castaneda misled millions of people who read his books, with many people still thinking that they're a truthful and valid path of spirituality. That tragedy is aided and abetted by Simon & Schuster, 
which still publishes his books as nonfiction titles, even though they've been discredited and are recognized as a hoax in anthropological circles. And it's aided and abetted by UCLA, which has never taken actions to revoke Castaneda's degrees, even though they were obtained by fraud. They thus continue to prop up his legacy of falsehood by giving it a patina of scholarship for his supporters. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Carlos Castaneda? Carlos Castaneda was a con man. He lied about his personal history. He lied to get academic degrees. He lied to get rich. He emotionally manipulated his followers and ultimately led them to death. His works may contain exotic ideas that struck a chord with many people, especially in the counterculture and the New Age movement, but that doesn't make up for the evil that he did. So what further resources can we offer to the listener on this subject? We'll have links to several books, and I should say that I haven't, you know, I've skimmed some of Castaneda's books, but I haven't read all the ones we're going to recommend. So caveat emptor, they may contain disturbing things. We'll have links to Castaneda's books, also Richard DeMille's book, Castaneda's Journey, also a multi-author book called The Don Juan Papers, Further Castaneda Controversies, Amy Wallace's book, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, The Salon article that we quoted, also the 1973 Time Magazine article, and thanks to Mysterious Irregular Father Matthias, OSB from the St. Vincent Arch Abbey, for helping me find the 1973 article. We'll have links to articles on Carlos Castaneda, the Yaqui, Jimson Weed, Peyote, the Tensegrity Clear Green website, also the Tensegrity video we heard from, an article on pathological lying, an article on chalk mules, and an article on plastic shamans. Very good. So we move to our mysterious feedback. And as I said, this feedback comes from our recent episode on curses. And our first bit of feedback comes from Ruth W., who wrote on Facebook, I was initially surprised by the previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World clip because I didn't remember hearing it before, but I enjoyed it and was happy that I correctly identified the source. So Ruth is referring to a previously segment at the front of the Curses episode where I used a clip from the song My Name is John Wellington Wells from Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta The Sorcerer. And yeah, we hadn't actually played that clip before on the show. Sometimes I'll use the previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World clips to remind listeners of things that we're going to be talking about in this episode. But sometimes I also just use them as a clever opening to the show. Yes. And if I need a justification for that, it's that, well, we live in a mysterious world and I'm Jimmy Aiken. So anything in world history has happened before on Jimmy Aiken's mysterious world. (laughs) And so I can use anything, any audio recording from history I want there. It's just fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's just fun. So that's what I would have to say, but glad you enjoyed it. Denise L. writes on Facebook, loved the episode Still trying to get that song out of my head. <laughs> yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan patter songs can be really catchy. Michael F. on Facebook writes, Great episode. I appreciate the differentiation between curses and vulgarities. Yeah, that's something that not a lot of folks are aware of. And we had some similar commentary from other listeners as well. They appreciated us making that distinction. Maol Siklan on Facebook writes, I personally prefer the episodes that are about particular incidents rather than overview episodes such as this one. 
Well, I, I hope you enjoy uh, this episode then, which is about, you know, this one guy and his story, Carlos Castaneda and his followers. And I appreciate that, you know, there are different qualities to the more incident or historical biographical shows and the more topical shows. I try to have a balance between them, you know, and sometimes we need to talk about topics in order to set up stories we're going to tell later. But even in the topical episodes, I try to find ways to storify them if I at all can. For example, in our recent lie detector episode, Instead of just, here's the science on lie detectors, we talked about the story of how the lie detector came together, who the personalities were that invented it, and then the story of the first guy to get caught after murdering a priest, uh, Hightower. And we told the story of what happened and how he got caught with it. So I'm always looking for ways to introduce stories. And so even if you see an episode that looks like it's going to be topical, there's probably going to be one or more stories embedded in it. Eric E. sends an email. I love the show on curses. I submit an account of my own experience. Once while in college, I was talking to a good friend on the phone. His girlfriend, who was a self-professed Wiccan, wanted to talk to me. She asked me what god I worshipped. Without missing a beat, I said, Yahweh. Oh, him, came the chilly reply. We proceeded to spar for a while, back and forth. Shortly after that conversation, I found myself in a condition of being famished, regardless of how much I ate. Even if I ate so much, I couldn't eat any more. I was still famished. After a few days of this, I had a suspicion that she cursed me. So I said a deliverance prayer of my own composition, and immediately the issue went away, and I had no more subsequent problems with it. I don't tangle with Wiccans anymore. What say you? I can't disprove that she put a curse on you and that it was effective. On the other hand, there's speculation here. You don't know that she put a curse on you. That was a guess based on the coincidental timing of you having this testy conversation with her and having an unusual physical condition. In fact, it could even be that the speculation was related to why you were having this. I mean, our minds do have an effect on us. And if you think you've been cursed, that could reinforce your perception of symptoms that you're having. So it, it's, it's possible, but I wouldn't say it's certain. And in terms of messing with Wiccans, I don't think they have as much power as they would like to claim credit for. Monica sends an email I was listening to your episode about curses, and it got me thinking about another reason why people may fear that they are under a curse. Someone I know has been diagnosed with delusions, and after medication and therapy, has been able to control this. But he would be doing great at work and then have someone point out something that he could work on, and he would then decide that he was probably going to be fired. He would then unintentionally give up and create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I wonder if some people may have the same mindset. I think Monica's right. I think that there can be a self-fulfilling prophecy as an explanation for many cases of curses. If someone thinks that they've been cursed, it can lead them to give up in a way or or cause symptoms or things in their life to happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened. So I think self-fulfilling prophecy is something that does need to be considered in, in such cases. Tobias writes on YouTube, Hi, I'm Tobias, your fan from Poland. In Matthew 21 and in Mark 11, Jesus comes across a fig tree, and upon finding no fruit on it, he tells the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, which leads to the tree becoming withered. 
Many Bibles even call this segment, Jesus curses a fig tree. Would that be an example of a curse? I suppose having listened to this episode that it could be called a curse, since it involves causing harm to something. Then again, maybe it would be better to just call it a demonstration of Jesus' divine power without the need to assign it to a specific definition. What's your take on that? I think it's both. It is a curse because he speaks evil of this tree, a physical evil of withering, and then it withers. So it does fit the definition of a curse, but it's not a random act. And this is something Bible scholars have pointed out. It's most obvious in Mark's version. Mark has literary technique he uses that has become known in Bible scholarship as Mark and sandwiches. The idea is Mark tells two parts of a story and then between those two parts, he sandwiches in another story that relates to the two halves. So you see this, for example, with Jairus's daughter. You know, Jairus approaches Jesus about his daughter. Then we have the story of the woman with the hemorrhage. And then we get back to Jairus's daughter and Jesus raises her from the dead. And this, this juxtaposition of the two stories with the woman with the hemorrhage in the middle of this little girl who also has a medical problem shows us Jesus's ability to heal people at any stage of life, for example. Well, in the case of the cursing of the fig tree, if you look in Mark's version, Mark notes that there were leaves on the fig tree. And actually, the way fig trees work, they put out this early kind of crop when they have leaves appear. Even if it's not the regular time for the main harvest, when their leaves appear, they put out this kind of early crop and Jesus doesn't find any fruit on the tree. So despite the outward show that the fig tree is putting on with its leaves, it's really barren. It doesn't have any fruit. And then sandwiched between the two parts of the fig tree story, Jesus goes to the temple and clears it out because it's being abused. So you have the temple as this outwardly showy religious institution that's spiritually barren because the people there are not doing what God wants. And so by cursing the fig tree, it foreshadows the destruction of the temple. In both cases, we have something that's outwardly showy but has no fruit and is going to be destroyed. So it is a demonstration of Jesus's power, and it's a physical parable. It's an object lesson. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We, lo we love getting your feedback. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, Carlos Castaneda spent a lot of time in the desert and claimed to find things there. And so our theme for mysterious headlines is things you find in the desert or one particular thing. <laughs> Recently, there was in Utah a helicopter for like the Wildlife Service counting bighorn sheep, and they flew over a strange object that has been described as a monolith. It's not really a monolith because it's not a stone. The lith. In fact, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, in fact, lithos, the word for stone. But it is a, a metal object that looks kind of like the monolith from... 2001, which is what everybody thought of. It's just standing there. It's about 10 or 12 feet tall. It's it's silver, so it's not black like the 2001 monolith. And it's also a triangular cylinder, so it's not a rectangle. It looks rectangular if you view it from a certain angle, but it's three-sided, so it's a cylindrical prism. And it's just out there in the desert with no explanation. 
people immediately wondered if it has to do with aliens because it's, it's always, always aliens. aliens. <laughs> but even though the authorities in Utah have not published its location, because it's in a really remote place, and they don't want people going out there and getting stranded or having bad things happen to them. So they haven't published the location, but you can find it on the internet. And so people have been going out there. So we'll have both an article or a, a, a video with an article about the discovery of the monolith, and then also a video of a guy who went out to see it. And you watch his video, it's it's quite interesting. He's got like, um, it. drones can do amazing things to get camera shots for you these days. And it's worth watching his video just to see the gorgeous landscape and, you know, the canyons and everything that he has to go through. It's really gorgeous scenery. But it also makes the point, this is really remote and it can be very, very hard to get to. I mean, at one point he likes it's like he's trying to find a way down off a cliff and there's just a huge drop here with no obvious way down. <laughs> so it, it he, he himself does not recommend going out there because of how hard it is to find. And there's a question of are the authorities going to leave it there? They may well take it down mm. because they don't want it becoming a tourist attraction and having people get stranded and so forth. But it's not aliens. And this was obvious to me from the very first image I saw of it, because even in the little fuzzy, grainy original videos, you can tell there are rows of rivets on this thing. Right. You know, the, the, there's a row of rivets down each side of the of the metal face uh, and they're in parallel to each other. And you look closer in the videos of the people who found it and yeah, those are just you bought those things at Home Depot or something, <laughs> right. you know, and so it's it's not aliens. But the real question is, did it send a message to Jupiter before we discovered it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I got two things. Uh, I, I actually want to say that first, I don't think we have ever gotten the, the links to a news story more than we've gotten from this one. Like we had so many listeners and we do appreciate getting links, but so many listeners sent <laughs> in links to this because they knew this is definitely something for Mysterious World. So <laughs> we do appreciate that. Yeah, we may have gotten as many links with some stories, but we definitely got a lot on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing is, is, I was thinking about this: like, is it some kind of weird art installation? But the the mystery is why in this remote place where no one would ever see it, like it was only ever seen because a helicopter was flying low over it. I just, it's a mystery in that case. I think it's, I think it's an art project. Yeah, yeah. Just a weird, obscure one. Probably maybe someone taking a psychedelic drug while they were doing it. <laughs> All right. So that does it for us for now. What are your theories? We want to hear your feedback about Carlos Castaneda as the godfather of the new age and his possible death pact. You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page or by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, having talked about the magical mystery tour that <laughs> Carlos Castaneda and some of his followers went on, next episode we're going to be talking about another kind of mystical journey as part of a new movement known as randonauting. Uh, there are millions of people doing this, and I'll be going on my own randonaut journey and tell you the surprising thing that happened when I did. Mm, interesting. 
Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. And you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>